Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. We are really excited to have you here for the Freedom to Serve panel, and we have some incredible speakers here for you that are going to educate and enlighten and all of the all of the things. So there will be time for Q&A towards the middle, towards the end of the session. So go ahead and start thinking about your questions now. But um, as far as the session introduction goes, what you can expect, um, we're going to be talking about the significance of Executive Order 9981, which integrated the armed forces. So what does that look like from a historical perspective, and what does that look like moving forward? I will also talk through the significance of the university-affiliated research center designation that Howard just received. So it's a really exciting opportunity. Um, for us, and then finally, we'll talk through the role of mentorship and training and uh, development programs through diversity, equity, and inclusion. So those will be kind of the three main pillars that we'll talk through this morning. But as far as introductions go, we will go ahead and get started. My name is Casey Sharperson, and I'm a brand strategist and a speaker and an author. But uh, the reason that I'm here is because I also work in tech. So uh, the fun thing about what I do is I'm kind of on like the, the relational side of technology, and I'm account manager for a startup tech company, and we work for mass market and luxury um, retailers, so within the clothing industry. So it's a lot of fun. I've been in the SaaS industry for um, over a decade, so really excited to kind of bring that perspective here as well. So go ahead and pass it over to my co-moderator, Colonel Burks. Good morning, everyone. So I'm Felicia Burks. I'm also the um, commander of the 82nd Medical Group, really, really invested in diversity and inclusion also with STEM. And so some of the things that I've done is partner with General Adams in establishing Crucial Convo, which was based on a desire and hunger and a need out of necessity after the incidents of George Floyd in 2020. And since that time, we've really been developing leaders and looking for solutions so that we can bridge that gap for diversity, equity, and inclusion. In terms of health IT background, I'm, I'm a healthcare administrator, and so I have the health informatics background, but also back in 2010 established a nonprofit for STEM for youth and underprivileged communities, because as we know, when you have access, it actually opens up you to more opportunities, and so that's really what it's all about. And so honored to be joined with Casey and this team here to discuss freedom to serve in the digital age. Thank you. Thank you. So if we could just go down the line and do some, some quick intros about what they can expect to hear from you. Good morning. I'm Dr. Ken Dunn, retired Marine Colonel. I uh, attended the Naval Academy, graduated in uh, 1974. Uh, served in the Marine Corps as an artillery officer, did a lot of command and control stuff in the, in the Marine Corps, as well as instructing and teaching. I am a, a historian. I teach, a, I teach at our Marine Corps University teach a course on uh, the Montfort Point Marines. The Montfort Point Marines, in case you don't know, they're our version of, of the Tuskegee Airmen. So uh, that's, uh, that's really what I teach. Uh, the Marine Corps integrated, was last to integrate in 1942. So the relevance of 1948 and the, uh, the passing of, of Executive Order 9981 is very, very significant for us in the Marine Corps. So we want to make sure that, that, uh, that we join that group that, uh, that's going to pay homage uh, I'm, I'm here to, to, uh, to discuss uh, uh, Marine Corps history from the Marine Corps perspective, obviously, and also to support, uh, support what we're doing here in this panel. I, I would also like to say that uh, Casey Sharperson, I got to put this footnote in, Casey Sharperson is the granddaughter of an original Montfort Point Marine. So her, her grandfather joined the Marine Corps in 1942. Uh, 
Kosh Hopperson Sr., so she's got props. And, uh. <laughs> also, my dad was his classmate. My dad was a Marine Corps uh, pilot and Naval Academy grad, so also a fun <laughs> He wasn't a classmate. He was a couple years of Hammond, so I raised yeah. him properly. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's all I have. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, I am Victoria Coleman. I am the chief scientist of the Department of the Air Force. Uh, I am computer scientist by training. Um, I, I am here to talk a little bit about uh, the UARC that we uh, established um, recently at Howard University. Um, and I guess reflecting on 9981 um, is like what a wonderful way to celebrate the 75th anniversary. Uh, we've actually been able to do something, do one thing. Um, I look forward to uh, actually learning a lot today from my fellow panelists in the audience. Thank you. Good morning. All right, here we go. How y'all doing today? This is a beautiful audience. Thank you for being here today. I am uh, Colonel Aries Menser. I literally would not be here today, not on this panel or this long in the Air Force without my exceptional mentor. I don't know where he went. General Terrence Adams, who brought all of us together. Could you please stand up, sir? He's in the back. Yes. Please give right. this man a round of applause because He is connected to all of us and has played a pivotal role in all of our careers um, and also in this BEA conference, not just now, but for the many decades of his career. And so I just want to give him his praise and um, a just a round of applause because he is just an extraordinary gentleman. So thank you, General Adams, for bringing us together and bringing this larger forum together today. All right, so I'm Colonel Aries Menser. Uh, I am currently at Air Force Special Operations Command. I just finished up Wing Command at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery. I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a, a wedding officiant. Uh, I have many roles in life, but one of the favorite things that I love to do is work towards securing what, uh, the freedom to serve. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit more today, but um, uh, we are here because of people like um, the Marines, because of people like the Tuskegee Airmen, because of somebody later I'm going to talk about named Sergeant Isaac Woodard. They paved a path for our service, and it's now up to us to pick up that baton and to continue continue that journey, continue that, that, that relay, um, and leverage the digital age to figure out how we can leverage the best of America's society for all of our services and ensure people have the freedom to serve, to come forward and be a part of this great thing of wearing the United States Air Force uniform. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Rick Pina. You've heard Navy and Air Force and Marine Corps, uh, so we saved the best for last. So uh, <laughs> United States Army retired General Adams and I uh, have a common mentor in uh, General Dennis Vi. Uh, so we, we established a relationship through, through that. But I served in the U.S. Army for 25 years. I did my last five years in the Pentagon. My culminating assignment was serving as the Army Chief Technology Officer. Uh, and I am the public sector Chief Technology Officer for Worldwide Technology, which is the largest black-owned business in the United States. Uh, and Dave Stewart, who is our founder, is, is committed uh, to giving back. I'm also a diversity champion. I lead uh, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. I lead the global and the Hispanic Latinx Employee Resource Group for our company, and my wife and I, who also served, have a nonprofit, and we have a school in the Dominican Republic for Haitian children, uh, where we have 180 Haitian students. So mm. this is very passionate for me. I am a technologist, so we're going to talk about, I will talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also technology. And what about your faith? And I'm also a man of God. I'm a pastor, and uh, we have a church in the Dominican Republic, so 
who I am is a man of God. This other stuff is just what I do. All right, thanks. All right, y'all didn't know that we were going to be going to church this morning, but we are. Praise him. Okay, so first question for uh, Colonel Mincer. The honorable service of black men in uniform during the Civil War provided the opportunity for enslaved men to demonstrate their worth and to fight for their country. Um, their freedom and their citizenship later is defined by the 14th Amendment. So as we celebrate the 160th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation in 2023, why is it important to continue to elevate and celebrate black history? Absolutely, and I'm gonna stand up because I like to move when I talk, so I'm gonna break tradition here because I wanna see all of you. So let me take you back for a minute to February 12th, 1946, and there was a young man by the name of Sergeant Isaac Woodard. He had just returned from serving honorably overseas to a base in Georgia where he was decorated and honorably discharged. He got on a bus, and that bus was gonna take him to North Carolina to separate from the army and reunite with his family. On that bus, he asked to use the restroom. Right? The bus driver exchanged some words and disparaged him as an individual. He was a black army soldier in his uniform traveling home to North Carolina. That bus driver then called ahead to the next city in South Carolina to the police chief. The police chief pulled Sergeant Woodard off of the bus and he beat him until he was blind. He would never see again. His family would find him more than a month later <clears throat> in a um, veteran's home, and he was blinded for life. This story got all the way up to President Truman by way of the Orson Welles show in 1946. And President Truman was horrified that a black man, a service member in uniform, would be beaten almost to his death, excuse me, <clears throat> because he was a black man in uniform. And so President Truman stood up the Civil Rights Commission. And that Civil Rights Commission took a look at how we are treating um, our black Americans, particularly those in uniform. And what he discovered is um, uh, along the lines of the Double V campaign, right? Black men and women were showing up and raising their hand and say, I wanna support and defend the Constitution of the United States. But the victories they were fighting for overseas, they were denied in their communities in America. And as a result of that, President Truman, on 26 July of 1948, signed Executive Orders 9980, which integrated federal service for all the civilians serving in our federal government, and 9981, which integrated our armed services. This July 26th of 2023, we will celebrate the 75th anniversary of Armed Forces Integration the opportunity for many of us to be able to serve today. And so as we look towards the future, much sacrifice has happened for every single one of us in this room, whether you are military, whether you are a federal civilian, whether you are an American citizen, to have the freedoms we enjoy. There was a lot of service, a lot of sacrifice, and our world is changing, right? We are very much coming closer to a near peer adversary. And we need the best of all of our Americans if we are going to be able to preserve our democracy. And so as all of these people have paved the ability for all of us, regardless of what you look like, where you started in America, whether you're a male or a female or what race you are, we all today have freedom to serve. And there's more work to do, 
but as we leverage all of the best of America to include all of these wonderfully emerging technologies, how do we not only preserve the freedoms that so many have fought for to get us where we are today, but pave an even better path for those that follow? And when I say those that follow, I'm looking at all of these beautiful cadets that have joined us here today from the Air Force Academy, from the Naval Academy, from the Army Academy. Did I miss anybody? Any other cadets? Are there any Air Force cadets here? I don't hear you. Are there any Air Force cadets here? Is there any VMI in the house? All right, all right. Where's my Army, Army cadets? Where are y'all at? So y'all act like it's not a celebration in our 75th year. I'm here. Are there any cadets in the house? All right, there you go. So as we hand the baton to you, you know, I've been in the Air Force now for 25 years, and as we hand the baton to you, have we done our duty to ensure you have the freedom to serve? And are we leveraging the best of our people in America, of our technology in America, so that those that follow have even more freedom to serve to preserve this great American experiment, this democracy? Thank you. Thanks, Colonel Minster, for really setting the stage and really just showing us our why and remembering why would we do what we do. And as I look at all the faces out here, I'm inspired because I know our future is secure because you're the ones who's going to save America and continue to make sure that we can maintain the greatest power ever known. So thank you. Um, my next question is going to go to Dr. Dunn. And so as we talked earlier about the... Um, Howard University establishing or being named the University Affiliated Research Center. What exactly does that mean for STEM students and alumni? And so, of course, it's starting with Howard, but when you think about what it does for students all over our country and the world, what does that do and what does that mean? Over. Yes, ma'am, thank you. Um, the UARC, the University Affiliated Research Center uh, funding was uh, signed by Secretary of Defense two weeks ago, it's only two weeks ago, and he said, we're going to give $90 million over five years to Howard University and, uh, and a number of affiliated uh, colleges. I'm gonna list those universities, Jackson State, Hampton, Tuskegee, uh, Bowie State, uh, Florida Memorial, Norfolk State, and also Tougaloo College. So Howard University is gonna, gonna manage that, and of course, uh, Dr. Victoria here, she's the author of that, so she'll talk more about that. But I will give you my perspective from the Marine Corps. When I was a major, I worked for the Army at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. Now, uh, uh, and uh, just tell all my Army uh, cadets and folks who served the Army, the Army had a lot more money than the Marine Corps, so they sent me down to uh, University of Texas at Austin every month for a meeting at their Applied Research Laboratory. Now, this is from 1990 to 1993. So University of Texas at Arlington had, was part of this UARC 30 years ago, all right, 30 years ago. And I, would, I went out there and I said, how is it that the University of Texas was a you know, well-endowed university to begin with, how is it that they're receiving, they are on the receiving end of more money from DOD? So when two weeks, uh, two weeks ago when, when it was acknowledged that th this type of money is going to Howard and these associate uh, uh, universities, that is a huge historical event, huge. What that means to you is that for you who are STEM related, all right, whether you're, whether you're uh, college students, you're cadets at the service academies, 
or you're a career uh, person in science and technology, this just means that there, is, there are tremendous opportunities that are, going, that, that are going to be presented to you all right, in the future. And if you're, if you're going to an HBCU, particularly the ones that I mentioned, that means more opportunities are available to you. So from a Marine Corps perspective, having observed what a UARC can do, uh, I think that, uh, that your future is very, very bright. And, uh, and you, should, you should thank the Air Force for, uh, for honing in on this initiative to make it happen. Okay. Amazing, and I'm an HBCU graduate, so I'm a huge advocate for them. Claflin University, South Carolina, woot woot. Anywho, um, we'll transition to the next question, Dr. Coleman. And you were instrumental in the work of HBCUs even kind of entering into this space. So would love to hear from you um, the importance of this work, how Howard was selected, and what that looks like moving forward. You know, this whole thing started a long time ago. Um, you know, here in the front, we had my good friend, uh, Dr. Gant, Lenora Gant. Lenora and I started talking about these issues when I was uh, first at DARPA, um, I guess the end of 2020. Um, and we were planning lots of things, and you know, you plan things and then things change and um, kind of nothing materializes. So, you know, I, I, that, that kind of chapter finished um, I left, um, I was left with this desire to uh, do something. And I, you know, I keep saying do something, because do one thing. Yeah. I think the enormity of the disparity and the inequity that African Americans um, had to, are still putting up with, oftentimes somebody like me can be almost paralyzing because it's too big a problem. And, you know, when you're faced with something as big as that, you know, I think it's a human reaction to want to run away and leave it to somebody else because, you know, you're too small to solve it. And in truth, everybody, I am too small to solve it. Each individual here is too small to solve it. But together, hell, we can solve it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, my, my, my sense was that, you know, we should do one thing and, you know, being... You know, s sitting where I sit in, 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 in the Pentagon, technology is our weapon, our people, our STEM talent is a weapon. Um, and when I look broadly, you know, in the enterprise of the DOD, you know, now more than ever, our, our mission depends on technology advantage. So, you know, in order for us to build, realize that, we need many, many, many STEM people in uniform and civilians to come work with us. We need the best. Uh, and how can you have the best? How can you, you know, fill this need if you're ignoring a massive demographic, which we have been doing in the DOD? And you know, um, the Chinese know this better than we do. So they, they look at education as a contested domain. You know, I mean, the way that we've structured our, our, our Department of Defense, you know, each service is responsible for a domain. So, you know, we have air, and the Space Force has space, and you know, uh, the Navy has the, you know, the sea and uh, the Army has the land. What about education? Education is a contested domain. So how can you win? How can you fight and win in, in that domain if you ignore a massive talent pool that is captive, captured, existing inside of HBCUs? <coughs> so, you know, once kind of you realize that, the, the, the solution, you know, presented itself, um, 
I will not for a moment claim that this was the work of one person. And if anybody tells you that, they're lying. This was the work of many people across the department. It was an unprecedented effort to, um, to bring together folks that ordinarily, you know, would much rather poke each other in the eye that work together, right? So, you know, we fight about all sorts of things, about money, about mission, about who's going to do this. I tell you on this thing, we worked with people that, Personnel and readiness, you know, as a technologist, I always fought with them because I always want them to hire people, you know, more quickly than blah, blah, blah. In this case, everybody worked together. Um, we, um, we as a team went and presented our thoughts and our plans to the Secretary of the Air Force on March 22nd of last year. Um, and as my colleagues will tell you, I was shaking. I was, you know, I, you know, you can tell I've been around a long time, right? I've, I've spoken to people. Um, I was nervous um, because it was so important to me and so many other people. Um, and the secretary said, what took you so long? Mm. <laughs> okay, so I'm thinking this and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I should have asked for twice as much money as I did. But <laughs> I, I, I will know better next time around. Um, so between um, March 22nd and January 23rd, when uh, Secretary Austin announced the, uh, the winner of the UARC, uh, a ton of work took place, again, by this amazing extended team. Um, it's been, honestly, I think the highlight of my career to be able to work in that team. Um, and, I, and I have to tell you, I didn't really appreciate how important this was going to be. Um, you know, we started off by thinking, you know, there are 14 Yorks. There's never been a York in the Department of the Air Force. There's never been a York in an HBCU. Hell, let's make one. Um, now looking back on it and realizing that, um, to Dr. Dunn's point, this is the largest award ever to an HBCU. I had, I had no idea. Um, so I think you know, my commitment, our commitment of all of us in the department, uh, and in the efforts in particular, is to make this a beginning, a small beginning. Nonetheless, it's a beginning. Uh, and something that we look forward to, um, to continue to build with. And something that honestly will in order to succeed, will require participation and passion by everybody in this room. Everybody has a contribution to make. Um, I'm hoping that at the end of it, you know, Howard will be an R1 institution, will be the first ever HBCU to become an R1 institution, and that opens up so many opportunities, so many possibilities. And at the back end of that, it offers so much possibility, uh, so many options to us in the department as we try to get after our mission. So. Um, Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come here today and tell you a little bit about our work. And thank you, Dr. Gant, for being the initiator of all this. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Coleman. While you said so much and just thinking about what you shared about Howard, I get to thinking so much about how it's been strategically located within the nation's capital and so access to the Pentagon and the things that we'll be able to witness as we produce and blaze trails for others, right? Because as we know, Howard and many other, other HBCUs are the Ivy Leagues and help to make sure that our black and brown children can believe in themselves because mm -hmm. there's a fry with inside that we connect with. And so just so grateful. There's an African proverb that says, if we want to go fast, go alone. Mm -hmm. But if we want to go far, go together. And yeah. this is so far reaching that it will outlive generations of us, generation after generation after generation. And I'm so excited about what we're doing because these, these young cadets who will be our future general officers, SESs, and other deans or provosts 
will change the course of lives forevermore and be able to bridge the divide. So thank you for being a champion and thank you for just really, really just putting it back on education because that's really where it starts. And our folks are smart and brilliant. It's the access to information and knowledge and knowing how to advocate and have those skills to get to the next level is what they need. And that's what we provide. And so thank you for doing that. It kind of teases it up well for the next question and I'll go to Rick. And so Rick, as a minority leader, understanding um, across the diaspora and just really looking at your career as a retired army officer, and then also as a leader with Worldwide Technologies, who's also married to another minority and a man of faith. So we know that you do not believe in impossible. So when we talk about this, can you speak on the importance of having diverse representation um, in the positions of leadership? Oh, absolutely. Um, I like to teach by principle, precept, and example. So instead of giving uh, some principles on why uh, representation is important, I'm just going to give you a personal example. So uh, my wife and I, babe, would you stand real quick? My wife and I uh, were stationed, we're, we were deployed, that's my wife, all right. So we were, we were deployed in Bosnia, and, and years ago, uh, while we were, there's a, there's a reason why I asked her to stand up. We were deployed in Bosnia. And uh, while there, I was with uh, General Larry Ellis, who later became a four-star general. Um, uh, I actually got to know General Ellis in church because I, I became the pastor of the gospel service there. Um, and so General Ellis came back, uh, and, we, and then my wife and I left Bosnia. And we were back at Fort Hood, Texas, and we just happened to be in the commissary. Uh, so we were in the commissary doing grocery shopping, and General Ellis walks down the hall, uh, 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 the lane of the commissary. And so General Ellis walks up to me and gives me a hug, and I introduced my wife. And um, I, I have been in, in positions of, of influence, but, and I'm very thankful that my mentors, I never had Hispanic mentors because there were no Hispanic leaders. Mm -hmm. So my mentors were African-American or Caucasian. Uh, and I didn't realize, recognize that I was lacking something by not having a Hispanic mentor. Um, so Isabella at the commissary is like awestruck and she puts her arm out like this and I'm looking at my wife like, like, what's wrong? And so she shakes his hand, and we talk for a couple of minutes, you know, just normal chit-chat, and then he walks away. And I said, babe, what, what was that? And she said, babe, that's the first black general I ever met. And I remember in the commissary looking at her, awestruck. This obviously did something on the inside, right? It did something. It resonated on a deeper level with her, and I didn't really understand it. Honestly. Uh, so years later, uh, I don't know if you remember, Lieutenant General Ricardo Sanchez led the effort in Iraq. Years later, I'm in the halls of the Pentagon, and General Sanchez is walking down the hall. I go by Rick Pena, but my actual government name is Ricardo. So General Sanchez is a Ricardo. I'm a Ricardo. In Spanish, we have this saying, Tocayo, which means we have the same last name, the same name. So I walked up to General Sanchez in the halls of the Pentagon, and I was like, hey, tú eres Ricardo, yo soy Ricardo, somos Tocayo. And so he stopped. He gave me a hug, I gave him a hug, and we talked maybe for a minute, I don't know. But I remember as he walked away, I felt something on the inside, and I don't know how, but immediately I remembered my wife's reaction in the commissary. I said that to say this. When you see someone who looks like you, who sounds like you, who maybe has the last name like yours, who, whom you can identify with on a personal level, operating on a level that you aspire to attain, it does something for you on the inside that you can get no other way. I retired as the Army CTO. I went into corporate America. And even as confident as I am, 
when, and, and I talk about this a lot, I went into a lot of boardrooms and conference rooms, and when everybody in the room doesn't look, I don't see anybody that has a last name like mine or my wife, who's the CEO of her own firm, and she goes to all of these meetings and she's the only person of color, much less the only woman, um, then there, there has to be something done about this. So we have to be vocal, we have to have representation for many reasons, but one of the main reasons is because of the inspiration that, that, that it affects, especially in the generation that is coming behind us. Excellent, thank you. And, and I can absolutely relate. I was thinking about your experience and then once I left my HBCU, I went back into being the only um, in every space now that I work in technology in all different spaces, SaaS technology, and um, it's interesting. And now I work in the fashion industry and I had just left a place where there were three of us and now it's back to me being the one. And everybody's like, yes, Casey, we remember you. And I'm like, I wonder why, but... Um, <laughs> I, I understand the importance of what it looks like to have leadership and to have people in your space that, um, that can relate to you and can um, kind of start to pave the way for your journey. So really appreciate you bringing that up. And uh, for Colonel Mincer, as the Air Force continues to focus on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, how is the Air Force breaking barriers and really um, laying the foundation and continuing to lay the foundation for paving the way for freedom to serve? Absolutely, thank you. Um, you know, we talked earlier about Sergeant Isaac Woodard, right? That was a bottom-up initiative from community members, from the NAACP, from military members to be able to get our nation to integrate our armed forces. And having worked in the Pentagon for about 10 years, a lot of people are saying they, the secretary, the chief, you know, the CNO, the commandant of the Marine Corps, like they are gonna fix stuff. And while we have exceptional leadership that have risen up and, and are leading our forces to the future, a lot of the great initiatives are coming from you, coming from us, right? We have to be the change we wanna see in our armed forces. And so I'll give you an example. Um, you know, uh, I said earlier I came from Maxwell Air Force Base. And one of the things that has bothered me throughout my um, uh, later years in my career was simply the uh, OCP cap that we wore uh, with our uniform. And today you can't tell because um, I flat ironed my hair, but most days, and particularly down in Florida where I am now in Alabama where I was for the last two years, my hair gets pretty thick and pretty big, right? It's a lot. And it's about, you know, probably at least five applications of reapplying product in the day to keep my hair back in the tight bun uh, before we went to the ponytails, thank you Air Force, um, so <laughs> that I could show up and serve. Um, and uh, the last thing I wanted to worry about as a wing commander is, is my hair right before I step in front of an audience and, and represent my base uh, and represent in my community. So with my airmen at Maxwell, we started an initiative and um, we went to the BX and we got some hats off the shelf, some baseball caps, and we put some rank on the front, we put our names on the back, and then I took a picture of my hair fully combed out. Um, and it's about this big when it's in its natural state, particularly in Alabama humidity. And I shared that with our senior leadership. And I did that because as I look at our leadership, and again, they are doing amazing things for our nation, but almost all of them are bald. And when I talk about the fact that the tactical cap doesn't work for me and a lot of other airmen, it's hard for them to understand because it's not a barrier for them. 
And when I showed them my hair in all its full glory and a cap that was available commercial off the shelf that we could implement tomorrow, they made it happen. And now today you can wear a baseball cap with your uh, OCPs as part of your official uniform. And I share that with you to say, like, if something is a barrier for you, is something is preventing you from showing up as your best self, that's what we're talking about in the freedom to serve. You are that best advocate. And you keep going to the highest level until you can affect change. And if you got a great idea, not only do I want to hear it, but all of our community partners, all of our civilian leadership, they want to hear it too. Because we want to solve problems and open the doors for the best of America to join our ranks. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to defeat those folks that are coming closer to our level, is if we have the best of America in the room showing us from all perspectives what the problem is and what are potential solutions. So, think about what is most bothering you right now about being able to show up. I mean, just before this, you know, we were having a conversation about, you know, the pants that we wear as women in uniform and how we would love our fashion industry to help our military recognize all the figures of women that serve. So we're not spending a lot of money on alterations and we're able to wear some pants um, that, that fit, right? Very small thing, but it's gonna take us to go out and, and hand that solution to the institution because we're trying to solve a lot of big problems, a lot of big problems. And we're only going to be able to make service more accessible and to handle some of these big challenges if we have the best of America coming forward with what are the barriers, what are the solutions, and how do we get after more freedom to serve. Thank you. Thanks, Colonel um, Mensur. And so certainly appreciate that ball cap being in command myself. And so thank you for the liberation. But I hope you all in the audience heard what she said. Um, she became vulnerable and demonstrated, and she advocated. And so, of course, some of that is skill and just knowing how to be able to do that. I'm pretty sure that she may have consulted with mentors to ask, how do I approach this? And so you have that same right. What we typically see sometimes with minorities is not advocating for self or getting comfortable in the uncomfortable, but we know it's in the stretch that we grow. And so as you think about that, remember you are the solution to a problem today and tomorrow. And so own it. You've got this, and you have everything within you and you've been developed by the leaders that are even shaping you now to show you that you can do this. Find your allies, find your partners, your advocates, your coaches, your peers, your board of advisors, and let's help you strategize to create these solutions because together we can do so much to make a difference in our world. So the next question is gonna go to Dr. Dunn. And so let's talk about tactical autonomy here. Um, so what is tactical autonomy technology? And what does it mean for our Bay audiences? And then can you tell us how the Marine Corps organizations are involved in this research? Well, I can tell you that uh, um, tactical autonomy speaks to artificial intelligence. Right? That is, uh, we have a lot of scientists, a lot of research, a lot of money going into artificial intelligence, giving commanders the, the ability, the capability to do things that they, they, they had not done before. In the Marine Corps, we have, the, uh, we have our Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, which, uh, which works on tactical uh, issues for the Marine Corps. We also have, we also have a Marine Corps Systems Command. And uh, Ms. Spinks just left. She's in, uh, in our cyber force uh, operations, which do that. I can tell you that, uh, that 
that the Marine Corps, we're, we're not the leading edge on a lot, of, a lot of that technology, but we're trying to catch up, all right? One of the things I, I do want to point out, uh, and that was just mentioned on the importance of education, because that's, that's really where I, I believe I can speak with clarity. Whether you realize it or not, in our history, first of all, we have a beautiful history, whether you realize it or not. I mean, it's not, it's, there, are some, there are some bad days, but there are some lot of great days. Ex Executive Order 8802, which was signed in 1941, all right, uh, by President Franklin Roosevelt, all right, uh, that, was, that was done at the, uh, at the push of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. That was an all-black, one of the first black unions in the United States. Um, they, told President, they told President Franklin Roosevelt, listen, if you don't pass legislation which integrates the federal service, we're gonna march on Washington. And that was in 1941, all right? Uh, folks didn't know how to handle um, 100,000 black people in, in, the, in the streets of Washington, D.C. There was a lot of fear involved. So President Roosevelt, listening to his wife, Eleanor, who was an advocate for a lot of civil rights legislation, said, Franklin, I think you ought to listen to these gentlemen and pass that legislation. So uh, that's black activism, all right, in our history. That goes back to 8802. And when you, when you peel the onion on a lot of things that have happened in the military, a lot of it has come from, from soldiers, airmen, sailors, Marines, and the black press which have helped to push uh, advance the things that we, we consider very, very important. Now, in the Marine Corps, when, uh, you know, we, we just said how important the representation is. Mr. Pena said that. Um, Ms. Victoria mentioned how important education is. Um, in the Marine Corps, we're pushing a, 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 a Frank Peterson chair uh, to be taught at, uh, at our university. That is, Lieutenant General Frank Peterson was our first black aviator in 1950, all right? Uh, he, he was our first black general in 1979 and retired as, a, uh, as lieutenant general. Uh, we, have, we have gone to the Marine Corps and said, we would like to have a chair at our university which would cover down on all this history that is relatively, that's not well known, all right? And I would, I would, I would tell you students, particularly, you got, we have like Air Force uh, cadets and we have some, some, uh, some West Pointers here, et cetera. It says, take a look at what's being taught and see if there's something that you would like. As, so, as, as, uh, as the colonel said, if there's something that's, that's not covered down in your curriculum, ask for it, all right? Students have a lot of power, whether you realize it or not. You know, cadets, midshipmen, uh, you have a lot more power than you realize, uh, so ask for it. But we in the Marine Corps, we're pushing for a Frank Peterson chair. We would hope to see it uh, uh, established at the same time we celebrate the 75th anniversary of 9981. Thank you. Excellent. And then keeping in line with the uh, tactical autonomy, Dr. Coleman, could you talk about the impact of that technology research? And I believe you already kind of started, um, started addressing this, but what does that look like for the future? Um, and then how do you envision um, that, uh, that technology impact moving forward, uh, moving the needle in HBCUs, or even moving forward with expanding to more R1 uh, research centers? Yeah, th thank you. Um, so, you know, tactical autonomy kind of um, undergirds just about everything that we do in the service, both in the Air Force and the Space Force. Um, 
you know, when you look at the, the technologies that, you know, will really secure our advantage, this is one of them. Um, the fact that we picked that topic for the York uh, tells you how, um, you know, how important we see it in, for our mission success. It also, and I want to make this point, we picked a terrific set of schools to get after this cutting-edge, if you like, technology. Um, because we recognize that that talent that exists in these schools is just as good as the talent at the white majority schools where one would normally associate with a topic like that. So just parenthetically, I think it's important to, uh, uh, to underline that. Now, for, for our work, um, you know, one of the things that uh, we always aim for is force multiplication, right? To have, um, you know, have one individual count as many because, we're, you know, we're an all-volunteers force. Um, uh, our adversaries typically are not. It worked really well for us uh, when the Soviet Union was the adversary. We want that. To get that, we need tactical autonomy. And by that, I mean autonomy that currently lives in the lab to actually be out in the field and being deployed in the hands of the warfighter. For that to happen, you know, many, many things need to be, uh, need to be true. Like, you didn't, you know, we didn't go from a fully um, kind of manual, you know, operation of, of a vehicle uh, to a fully autonomous vehicle um, overnight without any, any, any steps in the middle. And today, you might argue that some versions of Teslas, for example, are virtually self-driving. It took millions of miles in the middle uh, to uh, build enough confidence to understand how humans would operate those vehicles, how, this, how these vehicles would work with each other on the road to make it a reality. So all these topics are all things that uh, we expect Howard and their consortium to work on as we figure out how we transition this key technology from the lab to the actual warfighter. Um, and to give you some examples, you know, with, with autonomy, once you have it, you wonder how come you lived without it. Uh, and you no longer see it. You know, a technology, you know, becomes really successful when it disappears, when it becomes just part of the fabric. And, you know, many of you, I suspect, took flights, took flights to come here. Those of you in the academy have the opportunity to fly lots. Um, um, autopilot landings. I remember the first time that a jet landed you know, at Stansted Airport in, uh, in the UK with, a, uh, with an autopilot. Um, that's autonomy. That's now in an everyday life. It was a big deal back then. Um, if you take ground collision avoidance systems, um, actually many people, uh, even folks you know, that um, are flying these jets in, in, in the service, um, would resist it because somehow it would make them, you know, uh, less in control, less safe. Now it's unthinkable that anybody will fly without that. So, you know, little by little, we take technology that we know works in the lab and we make it available, we integrate it into the mission, we make our missions more effective, safer. Um, we, you know, we will not succeed unless we are able to do more and more of that. And the work that our partners at Howard and the consortium will do will be truly fundamental in enabling that to us. And, you know, mark my words, five, ten years from now, if we don't succeed in bringing more autonomy to the field, our ability to defend our nation will have eroded. So, you know, we are putting a, a lot of trust uh, and a lot of, well, 
were counting on, uh, on Howard and the York to deliver. This is why we made um, you know, this investment, and this is why we made it there, because they have what it takes. Dr. Coleman, that was so good, and you just, you know, you just make me more curious and just thinking about it and even just sharing how it's so fundamental and covering everything, and even with HBCUs, right, creating other solutions. When we think about AI, which may inject some of the culture and bridge that gap so that it's more inclusive with some of the things, and based on how we make decisions, I just see so much, and even those other partnerships with um, large organizations and other schools, right, because Howard um, will have proven um, the credibility and also that we're producing the talent out of those schools. I just thank you for what you're doing. It just gets me excited. So, Rick, over to you again. With all the innovation that's happening within AI, um, ML, data science, et cetera, why is it so important to give young people, specifically those in disadvantaged, underserved communities, an opportunity to be able to just see that they can become everything that they've seen in their mind's eye? Uh, thank you for the question. I would say that uh, in many regards, uh, in many ways, young people, especially those in underserved uh, communities and populations, which we're trying to target uh, to give opportunities, just want that opportunity. So, for example, at Worldwide Technology, I have people that lead five lines of effort, uh, data analytics and AI that lines up a lot with what we just said, especially around uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, another one is cybersecurity, where we are leveraging um, autonomy and tactical autonomy to make decisions. We basically program cybersecurity systems to have predetermined outcomes so that when X happens, it sets off a chain of events without humans being in the loop. And we can insert humans in the loop if needed. Uh, Multi-cloud, where we can leverage the computing capability of the cloud of hyperscale uh, cloud providers, digital transformation, which we're doing in, in many regards across the board and really kind of giving people a rich digital experience. And then lastly, robotic process automation uh, and business process automation, which is really where we're leveraging bots uh, to enable humans to kind of get out of the mundane tasks so that we can get into more rich experiences on a daily basis. What I found, my experience, is that those that are black and brown in those environments that we give an opportunity to uh, for, and this is just my experience, work twice as hard. Uh, they're going to go out of their way uh, because of the challenges that they've had to get there. When I served on the Army staff in the Army, uh, I, I was fortunate to lead a cohort of 1,100 engineers across the U.S. Army in three flavors. We had network engineers, we had application delivery engineers, and cybersecurity engineers which were doing defensive cyberspace operations. So within the Army Signal Corps, 1,100 warrant officers, I was blessed to, to be the senior of the entire United States Army. Uh, and what I found even in that experience, that those that were black and brown, once again, when given the opportunity, work twice as hard in corporate America, we would say work twice as hard and, and get less pay or even half the pay. So, so uh, what we're, we're not asking for, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or what some people, you know, is now DE&I, uh, but uh, before even affirmative action, people looked down upon it saying that we were giving opportunities to people that were not qualified or underqualified, but really what we, we were doing is giving an opportunity to people that were not given the opportunity before. And if given the opportunity, uh, my experience has been that you're going to get a result that is very positive, and then it will inspire, because success begets success, it will inspire those that are coming behind us. Thank you. 
Excellent, thank you. And we're going to get ready for Q&A, so if you wanna go ahead and start lining up at the mic, which will be coming soon. Um, I was thinking about just tactical autonomy and what it looks like for technology, and I speak a lot to high schoolers, and they're always like, what am I supposed to do with my life? I think I have to have it figured out. And I tell them all the time, like the work that I do now didn't exist when I was in college, and the fact that technology just provides so many opportunities for growth um, is really, really exciting. So I think we're gonna bring the mic to you all. And if you could keep your question direct and brief. Uh, so that we can get as many questions answered as we can. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm Dr. Lenora Peters-Scant, and I worked with Victoria Coleman starting back in, back in 2020 to sort of kick this off. Let me say that my first job was when my husband finished medical school and went to Okinawa, Japan. I worked for Marine Corps at Camp Smitley D. Butler. I left there and went to England and work for Air Force. So as a military spouse with a professional degree, got my undergraduate from Florida a University, my master's from Vanderbilt, and my PhD from Virginia Tech. So as a military spouse, spouses bring a lot to the table. I wanna thank you, Dr. Coleman, and the Air Force for using Howard as the first UARC. I retired from the Federal Service from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in 2018. However, I was on a sabbatical at Howard University because I wanted to give back to an HBCU. Mm -hmm. So I chose to go to Howard after I retired. And I've been there now for four years. And academia and an HBCU is different. You have to hold hands, you have to make sure that you provide subject matter experts with them on the UARC. But let me make one thing very clear, and that is you get what you give. $90 million is a lot of money. But by the time the schools take off 20 to 50%, programs operate on half that amount of money. So it's still a lot of money, don't get me wrong. But having been in academia and ran the centers of academic excellence, 33 universities that I oversaw, I know what it is to manage a crater. Most of us know what a crater is. A cooperative advanced research uh, agreement. And I, I have two, one from NSA and one from geospatial sciences. So I retired as equivalent to a two-star general from the Office of Director of National Intelligence, and I will continue to support Howard as long as they keep me there, and I plan to be there for a good while. Thank you. Hi, I'm a C4C uh, Cannon from USAFA, and my question is, um, we're making very big strides in diversity and things of that sort, but the black population still makes up 12 or a little less percent um, of the school's population in terms of cadets. So what advice could you give um, in terms of, because I feel that it's important to create black spaces where we can collaborate with people that do look like us, not just be the only person in the room of a black and brown background. So what advice could um, any of you give in terms of that regard as far as networking goes and creating 
a space and an environment that looks like you? Cadet Cannon, thank you so much for your question. And, um, you know, I will approach it this way. Um, one, I'm looking forward to joining you and all of the uh, Air Force Academy cadets in about two weeks up at the Academy for That's your fun. leadership symposium. I'm coming to that symposium uh, with my 12-year-old son, right? Uh, if you asked him today, he's going to tell you he's not going in the military. He has a lot of other dreams. Um, he wants to be a DJ on the moon. Um, but uh, <laughs> Space Force isn't it either for him. But I'm going to bring him up to the academy to show him what that looks like. You know, coming up, and I'm the daughter of a naval, naval aviator, I had no idea about the, any of the academies. Um, and uh, I would say when my father was entering service, neither did he. Um, and so I think, you know, we have to um, get ourselves out into the communities and show people that this is a pathway for them. Uh, a lot of times when I travel, I travel in my uniform. Uh, and just the people that stop me walking in the airport uh, and seeing, you know, in blues, they usually think I'm, I'm flying the plane, uh, but in my OCPs, they often think I'm Army, but um, they stop and ask me about service because oftentimes they don't see people that look like me or that look like you that are wearing this uniform. And I think all of us are recruiters, you know. Each and every one of us have a responsibility to show all of American citizens the pathways that they have, whether it's through civil service or through military service, how they can be a part of this great institution of the armed forces. Last summer, I got to speak at um, the um, uh, commencement uh, ceremony for graduating um, uh, students in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, high school students. And, you know, largely I focused my comments on um, one particular civilian that worked at Maxwell Air Force Base. And as we celebrate and elevate um, the contributions of black Americans to history this month, you know, the majority of people that were graduating that year um, in Montgomery, Alabama, didn't know that Rosa Parks worked for the Army Air Corps as a civilian on Maxwell Air Force Base in 1941. And in fact, it was on Maxwell Air Force Base in 1941 14 years before the Montgomery bus boycott that she rode her first integrated bus on the military base. And that inspired her to, to do more outside of the military base. Our military institutions have long been a leader for our society in living up to our promises in our constitution, in living up to our 14th Amendment of equal protection under the law. You know, And how do we show more of America that there is an opportunity for them here in civil service, in military, as a military spouse, um, there are opportunities to serve with us. We have to show them the way. And so I encourage each and every person out here, when you finish this conference today and you spend your time in National Harbor, walk around in your uniform, connect with people here uh, in the National Capital Region, and show them the opportunities that you have at whatever VMI, the Academy, wherever you're serving right now, and welcome them into this great institution of the United States Armed Forces. Thank you. I would like to add something to that. And so thank you for being brave enough and courageous enough to ask the question. And so I, Colonel Aries' um, mentor is spot on. And so there will be skills that you will need to develop so that when you show up in the room, you know you belong there, you're yes. qualified, and we see you. And so in listening to you, right, understanding your peer group, right, we have a diverse cadre there, but I'm trying to connect with you and see where you are. And so if you're in that 12%, what about the other 88%? And so Maslow's heart give me says, okay, in order for me to reach self-actualization, I gotta first feel like I belong. That's your foundation. And so I'm hearing several things because I'm now trying to work with an African-American male who's trying to get into the academy. 
very smart based on his demographics and things like that. And his access to information, even his guidance counselor didn't know that he needed a congressman to be able to sign him up. That's what's happening. And so how do we do that? I think we got to partner with you. There's a general officer in this room who I highly respect named General Adams, who does general officer inspire. And I think we need to connect you and take you into these communities to show some of the people that look like you how we can do it. I think there's ways we can do that. And even with ROTC, but it's just the lack of knowledge and not having the awareness. And when we have the awareness, we know we can do something. And so to me, that's one piece. The other thing that we can do also with you, there are some sororities in your community too that can also help and are willing to help and come to bring folks like you alone, right? But there are males too, and so there are fraternities that are willing to partner. I'm a member of a sorority that we can get you connected as well, and there are a few others, right, that just come in to just show you you're qualified. It becomes a support system for you. And then thirdly, when I think about the other thing too, how do we affirm you with self, right? I'm seen, I'm valued, I am enough, you are. But with your peers, sometimes we tend to adopt an imposter syndrome, but just know by the virtue of you being in the academy, you already belong and you're there for a reason. And I want you to affirm yourself every day, showing yourself that you matter. And then lastly on that, I would just add affinity groups. You can form a group because you're already a leader. Form a group and find, form a tribe and then bring others in and be vulnerable. You are enough. Other folks need to hear so that they understand your experience. Like Colonel Mincer, I didn't even know about the academy. I didn't know about either of the academy. I started out in the Army and went to Army ROTC and had an uncle who told me he wished I would have talked to him, he would have told me to join the Air Force. It took a minute, but I'm here. And so nothing is an accident. The thing that you have now is gonna help you to have quantum leaps. And so now you can be able to project forward because now you got access to information and things you need. We're gonna develop you. You'll get these skills and what will happen, you're gonna just accelerate quickly because now you know. And guess what? Everyone else here is listening because when I was a cadet, I didn't have anyone to tell me that. And so now we have things to help you. And so all that we've said here is gonna help you because what you don't have, you can build because you're a leader and you figured out a problem, you're gonna create a solution. And what we're gonna do is give you a network and then say by 20, you know, 2032, guess what? Maybe that number increases from 12%. Maybe you will be the one to help it increase to 18%. And then before long, maybe it'll be 20%. We don't know, but at least we can get started. And so just thank you for asking that question. I know I went long-winded, but it's that foundational piece and I had to connect with where you are with your peers because I'm dealing with a senior in high school now that's smart, educated, but didn't know he needed to have a congressman to be able to do that nomination to get into the academy. Right. And so now we're just trying to battle and see how do we get him into the academy because he didn't have the knowledge. So, so we can help you to get there. Thank you. Thank Amazing. you. I bet you all didn't know that you were coming for a motivational event as well. <laughs> so I feel like we need to pass the offering bucket. Uh, go ahead, next question. Thank you. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to be brief, but I, I, do, I do have one, one uh, comment and then a question. Um, Morning, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Bowman, my headquarters Marine Corps serving in a systems engineering role. Uh, we do have engineers in the Marine Corps. Uh, I'm also on the board of directors for the National Naval Officer Association, uh, which is a diversity affinity group uh, for the sea services. My first comment, and uh, I'm, I'm encouraged to see all these cadets, and just so I understand, so Air Force Academy, are there any from civilian institutions or HBCUs? Awesome. So I'm, I'm really encouraged to see this, and I, I told, I turned to one of my, uh, my, my roommate at the academy, I told him, if I'm ever one of those senior officers that comes back and says, I wish I was in your, your seat, you know, I want you to turn and slap me, because obviously this is really difficult. What you guys are going through is difficult, you're working really hard. And so I was like, don't ever tell me I want to be back here, because it's always better on the other side. 
He's an embassy in Jordan, so he can't touch me. Uh, I really, <laughs> like, I'm looking at you guys, and you guys are in a great place right now, and I'm really encouraged to see you here. So um, I grew up in D.C. We went to Frederick Douglass's house, and uh, they would show a video. At the end of the video, anyone seen it, uh, Frederick Douglass looks directly in the camera. And he says, agitate. Agitate. So Cadet Cannon, to everyone else, if you want something done, agitate. Agitate. Be professional. Come ready. Agitate. My question, as we look at um, tactical autonomy, and we talked a lot about tech, tech is great. And having technical autonomy and, and those capabilities is great. And developing those in our uh, cadets and midshipmen is great. Do you also see spaces where we can help create individual personal autonomy, right? So as leaders and as we develop our, our midshipmen and our cadets uh, within the ROTC programs and as we recruit in uh, new junior officers, is there a way to take a look at how when that technology does fail, what do you do next, right? That what now lieutenant moment from Band of Brothers. What do you do uh, when that technology fails and how do you respond to that? So working with HBCUs and working with ROTC programs to make sure that the midshipmen in those programs are as uh, prepared as possible, whether it's academically uh, or just professional development. Uh, from across the services, are you aware of other initiatives uh, within your respective ROTCs? Maybe I can, uh, I can take a stab at that. I think others will have opinions also. But so I, I, I think um, at the end of the day, the human is the you know, is, is in control, doesn't matter how much autonomy you have. Um, I think what is changing, though, is the environment within which that, you know, that human will have to succeed or fail in taking over when a system is no longer, you know, doing its work, um, really depends on the skill set. So, you know, within the Department of the Air Force, we know that we don't have nearly enough STEM talent, either on the civilian side, certainly on the uniform side. So, you know, you want that pilot, you want that midshipman, you want that cadet, to know what is going on. So when the system fails, when the system fails, they know how to work around it. So one of the things that we're doing in the department is working really diligently to recruit more uh, STEM people, more diverse STEM people. Um, we, we're making a, you know, a nuisance of ourselves at the academy. The academy, you know, when people graduate, they. Um, Many of them want to go to pilot school, about half of the cohort, about 500 people a year. Well, there are 500 spots for them to go to. So they, they, they have a year that, you know, they do casual duty in some cases. We want them to go to AFIT. We want them to go to Berkeley. We want them to go to Howard to go get a STEM degree, get an advanced STEM degree so that they can ride the autonomy as opposed to the other way around when they're out of school, right? So to the extent that you can encourage, you know, yourselves, your peers, to others, you know, political science is good. And like my, my younger son is doing political science. By the way, he's the black sheep in the family. Um, <laughs> pick a STEM degree. Go get the education that you need in order to succeed, both in the service, but even, you know, in the world outside when you eventually retire. Get the skills that you need that, you know, will keep you above, you know, everybody else, right? Yeah, I have a, a quick example of, of what you stated. I remember years ago, uh, when, when I joined the Army in 1990, 
I had a program, back then it was telecommunications. We didn't start doing data to 92, so it was all voice. So I had to program my voice switch from scratch, every line, every phone, uh, everything. It was a 744 line switch and you had to program every phone, every class of service and everything. Years later, around 94, 95, I was an officer and we had a new system that programmed it for you. So all of the things that I learned uh, that I had to do myself, this thing would just do it in like six or seven steps and it would say step one of six complete, step two of six complete. So the young soldiers that would come in later, uh, they, I remember looking, they would look at the screen and say, oh, it got to step four of six complete, then it failed. What do I do now? What do I do now? I said, well, then program it. It was like, well, how do I do that, right? So, so like, you have to remember that the, that the technology, artificial intelligence, if we're not careful, can make some folks lazy. Um, we still need critical thinking. It's supposed to serve us, not the other way around. So you need the ideas to come up with the outcomes. And when these things fail, because they will, or when they give you the wrong information, because it will, you still have to think through it. So we have to make sure that our, the, the human in the loop is still the master of the process. I'll just say that. Awesome. Thank you so much. We have five minutes. So if we could go really fast. Hi there. I'll try to make it quick. Uh, my name is Bailey Garfield. I'm a senior at the University of the District of Columbia. Um, I'm an, uh, studying electrical engineering, and um, I was really excited about this seminar because it's a convergence of my research interests. Last year, I completed a Lockheed Martin Research Fellowship in machine learning, and this year I'm doing research in perovskite solar cells as well as spintronic devices. And um, there are a couple things I've noticed in the field of machine learning um, that we talk about a lot. We talk a lot about the software advancements. There have been incredible advancements in creating these neural networks and creating artificial intelligence that really works for us. But the part of the conversation that's often missing is about the hardware required to make it happen. Um, machine learning requires a tremendous amount of power, processing power for the computer, and also actual power to the computers that you know, do the processing. Um, we're kind of at a crossroads in the field of electrical engineering because since 1948, the year that they invented the first transistor, um, there's been this more or less rule called Moore's Law that says that every 18 months, the number of transistors that can be integrated onto a computer chip doubles. Now, since 1948, this means that in the last couple of years, this is billions and billions and billions of transistors being put on one chip. We are reaching a point where the transistors that are being manufactured are so small that if we make them any smaller, they are no longer going to obey principles of classical mechanics, but rather obey principles of quantum mechanics, which is why we're looking into fields of spintronics to create electric devices that basically run on electric spin rather than electric current, because we can't make these transistors any smaller. The reason I ask this is because in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of instability in the global supply chain um, that is making it more and more difficult to manufacture chips. And my, my question is, what are the armed forces doing in terms of hardware investment, making sure that we can manufacture the correct you know, computer chips to actually run these machine learning softwares and keep them in the United States so that they are resistant to you know, global supply chain issues? I think the obvious thing to point out is the CHIPS Act that passed um, you know, this, this past fall. It was an incredible um, uh, act of partnership across a very divided DC, a very divided Congress. Um, the DOD in particular is executing $2 billion uh, out of that. Um, what we're gonna try and build facilities here at home that allows us to you know, prove out the innovations like Spintronics and others so that we are not beholden uh, to um, 
adversaries to let us prove out that, you know, indeed something that you built out in your lab can be scaled and deployed in practice. It's a, it's a very good point. Um, for the first time in a long time, um, you know, America is investing in itself, which is great to see. Amazing. Thank you. All right. Hello, I'll yes, try to be brief. Yes. So, um, Captain Kiara Davis from the United States Air Force Academy. Um, Dr. Coleman, your reference to um, education as a contested domain really resonated with me uh, as an educator, um, especially as a black woman uh, instructor, one of very few at the academy. Um, I'm honored to be able to come back and teach at my alma mater. Um, my question for you, uh, you've spoken a lot about um, some of the wonderful things you expect to come from the UARC at Howard, being led by Howard University, but what are some of the things that I as an educator should be exposing my cadets to, uh, the skills, the experience, the conversations that we should be having to prepare them um, to be the leaders that we will need? Get Sorry. them to focus on, on STEM as much as, uh, as you can, but not at the expense of leadership. You know, it, we, um, we're having a, a debate right now inside of the department about whether we should code certain general officer positions to, to require advanced uh, STEM degrees. Um, my colleagues in uniform are fighting me because they, you know, they see it uh, is an either or. Should we be, you know, putting somebody in, in a role like that that uh, has an advanced STEM degree but no leadership? No, absolutely not. The two things have to be developed together. So, you know, my, uh, my, my exhortation to yourself and your, uh, and your colleagues at the academy is, you know, develop this next generation of blended leaders that both know how to lead, um, they know how to manage, uh, and they understand the technology at a deep enough level so that when you get to step four and it stops, they know, they know what to do versus who to call. I'll add, I'll add real quick as an educator. You can teach your uh, cadets to be able to write, right? to speak, right? and to lead. Every single one of these cadets are midshipmen, and uh, they're going to be they're going to task, they're going to be tasked to lead when they graduate. So you can focus on leadership, writing, and speaking. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we're going to do like a 15-second wrap-up for everybody. So if you have thoughts or questions, you know, things that you want to discuss, we can just go right down the line if we want to start with Rick. All right, closing thoughts. Hey, cadets, you're going to meet a lot of senior leaders today, captains of industry. Talk to them. Get inspired. Dream big dreams. And whatever the biggest dream you have is, dream bigger than that. I will add to that as you meet, uh, connect with people both uh, in the military and in, in the uh, um, industry, uh, as you're out here today in Bea, connect and build meaningful relationships to move forward because it's those connections and that network that you build throughout your career is going to drive to your success. Uh, and one other thought I'll leave you with, and, and, and this was a question that came up a little bit earlier um, about, you know, I think it was Senator Colonel Bowman who, who, who kind of talked a little bit about, you know, when the technology fails, right? Um, you know, our chief of staff of the Air Force is pivoting our force to focus on five cultural areas. One of those cultural areas is mission command. Mission command, right? Understanding the shared responsibilities, having mutual trust, being able to have resources, having clear commander's intent. Many of you probably don't understand what I'm talking about right now because we generally don't teach this until you come on active duty. But I would challenge each and every one of you to understand your roles in war fighting proficiencies. What does it mean to understand the operational environment? What does it mean to have true mission command? 
What does it mean to be a tactical or technical proficiency in the job that we're asking you to do? All of these things uh, to include to understand how all the things that you do connect with other things that people do that we need to be successful, that we need to win, right? And you're not going to be able to do that if you can't communicate. And communicate in, in ways with which we have a very multi-community um, um, or a audience here today. Folks uh, from college, folks you know, going through ROTC and, and academy programs, you know, folks from the DOD, folks from industry, right? If we can't have a shared language when we're communicating, that's, gonna, that, that's worse than the technology failing, right? Because we don't have a shared understanding. So uh, mission command, right? Uh, Multi-domain, how do things connect with each other? How am I going to be proficient in the things that I'm being asked to do in my duty um, and my operating environment? That's going to make you successful, not just in uniform, but in life. Thank you for joining us today. So I'm going to keep it real short, and I'm just going to echo what my colleagues already said and some of the audience. Wear your uniform with pride. Wear it as much as you can in as many places as you can, and agitate. Don't take no for an answer. You know, pick one thing, work at it. You know, find the team that will power you through to success. Don't give up. Agitate. I like following Dr. Coleman. She sets me up well. Listen, the, the point of it is, is, is this. Um, each one of you, once you graduate, you're going to be required to lead. You're not going to advance um, very far if you cannot lead. Right? So take to heart all the things that you can learn about leadership. And uh, if you can do nothing else, just like Dr. Coleman mentioned, wear uniform proud. If you can do nothing else, if you can't agitate, if you can't write a thesis on, on, uh, on what it is you're, you're concerned about, always remember to set a good example because somebody's watching, all right? Just as you watch a lot of senior folks here in this educational environment here at Bayer, Always remember somebody's watching and always set a good example if you can do nothing else. That's all I have. Thank you. Yeah, just um, one last thing. I will put a plug in for Crucial Convo. We're out on Facebook as well as um, Zoom. We have sessions every second and fourth Mondays. And what we've discovered is more of a developmental resource to help give you the skills that you need. Tony Robbins, I believe, is the one who says success leaves clues. And so you have so many all around you. And leadership does take courage, as um, you've heard many of them saying, just based on what you have to do. And many of you, right, you're blazing new trails. And sometimes that doesn't look familiar. But remember, it's in the stretch that we grow. And so you shall continue to do great things. Your, your success, right, um, will empower others to be successful, too. Two components, discipline and consistency. You'll reach your results. Stay consistent and be disciplined. You're meant to be the exception. And remember that you have the right to be unapologetically great. So go forth and conquer and do great things for this world. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you all for joining us. And we hope that you um, do stay and, and connect with all of us um, as you have questions. So thank you.